You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. to the Pratt Library's Brown Lecture Series on behalf of the staff, board of directors, and trustees. I welcome you here. This evening, we are honored to have Eddie and Sylvia Brown present, whose generosity has made it possible to underwrite this reception and program. The Browns have been a pillar of of this community And they have done so much, not only for this institution, but the community in Baltimore. So thank you so much, Eddie and Sylvia Brown. Let's give them a hand. (laughs) I am Vivian Fisher, manager of the African American Department. And it is my pleasure to introduce to you this evening our guest speaker, Valerie Graves. Graves, whom Advertising Age magazine named one of the 100 best and brightest in the entire industry, is a nationally recognized creative director of such Fortune 500 accounts as Ford, General Motors, AT&T, Burger King, General Foods, and Pepsi. A former teenage parent from the factory town of Pontiac, Michigan, Graves broke barriers in advertising as one of the first black copywriters at BBDO, Kenyon, and Eckhart, and JWT. She went on to an award-winning career as Chief Creative Officer of the Uniworld and Vigilante Leo Burnett Agencies, Senior Vice President of Creative Services at Iconic Motown Records, and Creative Consultant to President Bill Clinton. In 2007, recognizing Graves' stellar career and public service via the Advertising Council and the Partnership for a Drug-Free America, Industry Coalition Add Color granted her the title of legend. Please join me in welcoming Valerie Graves to Baltimore and to the Pratt Library as she discusses her memoir, Pressure Makes Diamonds, Becoming the Woman I Pretended to Be. Valerie. Good evening. Thank you so much for having me. This is all, this is my first book. Um, Everything is very new, and I'm always surprised whenever anyone invites me to speak. And the Enoch Pratt Library was the first. My wonderful agent, um, Marie Brown, a legend in publishing, said, you know, the Enoch Pratt is a very prestigious invitation to get. Um, So after that, I did a little research and and found out exactly how prestigious it was. Um, And I also want to say thank you very much to Eddie and Sylvia Brown for making it possible for me to be part of this series because I'm, I'm thrilled beyond measure. My husband was so impressed with that poster that was in the window out there that he had to stop and take a picture of it. So, you know, I'm not the only novice um, in this game. 
I was trying to figure out what I should read. I was trying to understand a little bit about my audience. You know, do they want to know more about what it was like to be a black person in the advertising, or are they more interested in the forces that shape that person? At a certain point, my publisher said, could you write a statement about why you wrote this book? It's the first time I really consciously thought about why I wrote the book. And what I told him, what I wrote uh, in that statement, that author's statement, is that many years ago in the 90s, one of my clients, probably somebody in some place like Coors, you know, uh, from a place like Colorado where they don't have a whole lot of African-American presence, said to me, oh, come on, Valerie, now. Um, you're not really black. <laughs> it wasn't the first time it was said to me, and it wasn't the first time it was said to my colleagues. Either one of them had the perfect answer. He said, you know what, uh, maybe I'm not really black now, you know, they meant because he was an executive and he had, you know, a little cash. All well, these, but for one brief and shining moment, I used to be. <laughs> and I thought, when I was thinking about why I wrote the book, it's like at the time, at that moment, I thought, what well, this guy doesn't know about me, about what it means to be a black person in this industry of advertising that when I entered it, was about 1% black or, or people of color, and it's now hovering around 6% all these years later. So you can see how diversity challenged that whole world is. What he doesn't know about me could fill a book. Uh, what he assumed about me could fill a different book, but I don't know that I would be qualified to write it because it doesn't have much to do with the truth. So Pressure Makes Diamonds um, is about the pressures that I faced that are not necessarily that unusual for an African-American person of my era. I'm, I'm a baby boomer, um, and I'd lived through a whole lot of change. There was a lot of pressure. You think about living through the civil rights movement, the black consciousness movement, the sexual revolution, the feminist uh, revolution, the anti-war movement. All of that was going on just as I was coming of age, and these are the forces that shaped me, and hence the title, Pressure Makes Diamonds. So what I want to read to you is one piece that I always read. I may or may not need these glasses. You know how it is. You get to the, the, the age of the focal length. You know. Uh, I always read this piece because it describes uh, perfectly kind of the situation that I was in as a young, 26 years old, I think, when this incident happened, young in the advertising business, completely surrounded in this company by white people, this particular agency, there wasn't even a janitor uh, who was African-American. The first job I had, there was one black producer and there was a woman in data processing. You know, and other than me, that was it. But when this incident happened at a major agency that remains unnamed in the book, so I guess I won't name them right this second, but if you read it, um, you'll find out who they were. This was at a big dinner 
that was held because even though we were a small agency, everybody didn't know everybody else. So I thought, oh, well, let's have this dinner. And it was very fancy, Chateaubriand, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and there came a point when everyone was to introduce himself, say their name, and what their position was with the company. So let's start there. This prologue is called, Was It Something I Said? I could feel the thing gaining momentum as it came around the table and headed for me. I felt my anxiety rising and briefly wished I'd had another drink instead of stopping at one. I hadn't thought it was wise to get too high, but now that my nemesis was coming my way, a little liquid courage wouldn't have been bad to have. The thing had the guys in the room in a frenzy each one trying to best the man who had spoken before him and avoid the wrath of the thing. The thing was the ferocious one-upsmanship my white male colleagues called on to cut each other down to size, to carve out the pecking order. The thing was an unexpected guest at the big ad agency dinner. Like the popular TV series Mad Men, the advertising agency was a clubby drama full of anxious, driven white men seeking money and power of every sort. Power in the marketplace, power with clients, power over colleagues, power over the few women who had managed to find their way into the business. The quest to gain and wield influence had long since taken on a life of its own. The thing was its weapon. Tonight, I was the least powerful entity in the crowd, a black girl trapped with a thing in a room full of madmen. I racked my brain for something to say that would show I could hold my own. I felt like a school marm in a frat house. In the office, I could opt out of the competition and just let my work, created with time and thought, speak for itself. In this intense, liquored-up room, the new girl, in 1976, the office's only black had no choice but to show and prove on the spot. As I scanned the crystal and china-laden room, I could see the tension in the bodies of the white uniformed, brown-skinned waiters and female attendants who looked like my cousins and great aunts. All evening, I had tried to read their averted eyes as they quietly went about their jobs. Now those eyes were all on me the only black person in the room not serving canapes or drinks. Would mine be the cringeworthy words of a happy-to-be-here Uncle Tom or some militant mess that would make the white folks scared and mean? No one knew, least of all me. Where I lose my place here. I was about to perform live at the Bloomfield Open Hunt Club, direct from the lakeside projects on the shores of Mud Lake. The thing picked me up and threatened to throw me back into that polluted pond. Go for what you know, kid, it snarled. It didn't give a damn whether I could swim or not. In the grip of the thing, I said the only words I had been sure would come out of my mouth, Valerie Graves. Then, something else safe, copywriter. I looked at my half-drunk colleagues waiting to see if the thing would drown me then I listened as the next words tumbled recklessly out of my mouth. And token. There was an audible gasp 
and the intake of air from both white and black folks for entirely different reasons, followed by gales of laughter from the agency crowd. My black brethren gave me looks that said, girl, I hope you know what you're doing. I didn't. But whatever it was, the thing would not take me under that night. The next morning, the CEO paused as he passed my doorway. Token, huh, he said with a beaming smile and an oh, you're such a kidder gesture. Two weeks later, I was out of a job. <laughs> they had other reasons, but reliable sources told me that my quip had sealed my fate. Apologies for the F-bomb that's about to follow. Fuck them if they couldn't take a joke. I had been saying what they wanted to hear my whole damn life. All right, so we rewind <laughs> to uh, talk a little bit about me as that precocious, um, mouthy little girl uh, from the projects of whom uh, for a time very great things were expected. You know, I was going to Harvard when I was seven um, and then I got derailed um, and we found out that life has unexpected twists and turns for all of us. Uh, but here's a little something from when I was younger and still headed that way. When I was 13, my mother married the man next door. Albert Munson was a nice-looking, dark-skinned man who moved into the lakeside apartment with his children, Mac and Sharon, when I was 10. Mac and Sharon's mother lived elsewhere in the projects with several younger children from a different marriage. Mac was a fairly good-looking guy, but Sharon was really quite beautiful, with a lovely face and a body that attracted a lot of attention from older guys. One day, Sharon, who was two years older than me, was bored enough to cross our shared front lawn and talk to me. We bonded over the revelation that her favorite aunt was married to my cousin and that my little cousins were also hers. From that time on, if her real friends, a couple of tough girls named Richie and Mary Jane, were not around, we would watch TV, gossip, and bake cookies or cupcakes together. If Mr. Munson came home while I was at Sharon's, we might exchange a few words. Like most of the fathers I knew, he did not spend a lot of time hanging out and talking to kids. I was very surprised when Sharon angrily told me that her father had decided that my brother Spurgeon and I would be the only kids allowed in the house when he was not there. Sharon largely ignored this directive. Richie and Mary Jane stopped by often to hang out with Sharon, puffing cigarettes and blowing smoke out the windows of Sharon's bedroom. Once, Sharon and I spent Thanksgiving night and the following day visiting our mutual relatives and babysitting while the parents worked. We got into a long, rambling conversation about how our race was perceived, which turned into a verbal example of Stockholm Syndrome that I blush to recall. We tongue-lashed our people like a couple of crackers at a Klan meeting egging each other on as we recalled loud, unruly public behavior, messy restaurant counters left behind, boisterous classroom behavior, fighting instead of studying in school, and all manner of missing decorum when it came to the behavior of Negroes. If we wanted to be treated better, and I can only hope we use the inclusive term we, 
We would have to learn how to conduct ourselves in polite society instead of showing the ignorant side of ourselves that was so often on display. Something possessed me to write all this down. When my cousin's wife, Sharon's aunt, came in from work, we proudly shared our dissertation. As proof of the damage that racism inflicts on the self, she agreed with us. So did the president of the local youth chapter of the NAACP, who invited us to read our work at the next meeting of Lakeside Community Center. Sharon was a no-show, but since I had shot off my mouth, my mother made me go. Eleven years old and still wearing my lace-trimmed socks with my black patent leather church pumps, I stepped to the front of the room and proudly read my excoriation of all of us for being the cause of much of the treatment we received from the white world. I sat down to a thunderous ovation that may have been further proof that racism drives people out of their minds. As the hip organ music of Ray Charles' One Mint Julep signaled the start of the partying that most of the teenage audience had come for, I thought, wow, Sharon is so stupid. She missed it, savoring the spotlight and the rare privilege of being present at a teenage social gathering. I watched from the edge of the stage as one of the neighborhood's best dancers swung his partner onto the dance floor. Whirling past, he shot me a smile that was icing on the cake of my evening as the Lakeside Project's official social activist smarty pants. By the time I was 12, I realized that Sharon, in skipping out on that celebration of self-hatred, had made a wise decision. Okay, so let us fast forward now about 25 years in the intervening years, I had become a parent, um, and when you read the book, you will see that that was the seminal event in my life. It sort of changed the trajectory of my life from the aforementioned Harvard to becoming a ward clerk in a hospital after graduating from high school. Uh, luckily, sort of by the grace of God, um, I was able to finish high school and still actually graduate a year early uh, with my class. But then uh, no immediate college for me. It was off to work for a while. Uh, ultimately, I found my way, fought my way, whatever, my way into the advertising industry and worked in the general market world of advertising for the first several years of my career. Eventually, I was offered a position by Byron Lewis, who is a, a pioneer of multicultural advertising, founded an agency in 1969 that still exists, and those of you who are familiar with black business know, you know what an accomplishment that is, that Uniworld still exists and is a major multicultural advertising agency. So um, by then I had married my wonderful husband, Alvin, who most of you have met. I actually met my husband when I was 11 years old and thankfully did not know that <laughs> at the time. Uh, but many years later, we ended up married, and you can read all about it <laughs> in the book, how that came about. But here I've been offered what sounded like a dream job by Byron Lewis. Byron's recruitment 
talk was something like, I don't know why it's so hard for me to talk people like you out of big white agencies because all I want you to do is do what I do, which is travel, meet everyone who's anyone in black America, um, and finally work for someone who understands your talent and what you have to offer. So here I was, newly arrived at Uniworld. That focal length thing, I'm trying to figure it out here. It's better with or without glasses. In the, U in the New York advertising industry that I entered in 1985, casual cultural apartheid was the order of the day. Venerable agencies like Young and Rubicam, BBDO, Saatchi and Saatchi, and J. Walter Thompson dominated the landscape and the lion's share of the budgets of the nation's biggest brands. Enjoying the euphemism, general market, these giants created messages aimed at so-called mainstream Americans. In fact, there was little that could be called general about these agencies. Their work in those days spoke to white America, specifically white Americans mostly aged 19 to 34, and that focus was reflected in the selection of concepts to produce, music, casting choices, and media buying. At best, their attention to diversity tended toward a tokenism without insight that is still too often reflected today. Comedian Seth Meyers once joked, thanks to advertising, I learned that every fourth person in a group of friends is a black guy in a cardigan. Still, still true today. You know, or a racially ambiguous person now. They've been replaced by, excuse me. Um, some huge brands like Burger King, Avon, Coca-Cola, KFC, and McDonald's, knowing that a significant share of their sales came from African-American and, and Hispanic consumers, were influenced by retailers and franchisees who had actual contact with consumers of color. Those brands with hands-on purveyors had become frustrated by the lack of attention to black and Hispanic consumers and became the earliest and biggest accounts of African-American targeted agencies like Uniworld, Mingo Jones, and Burrell Communications in Chicago, as well as several agencies dedicated to reaching Hispanic American buyers. Because our budgets were a tiny fraction of the total, the big agencies generally ignored our existence, as long as our work carried the campaign taglines that they, as lead dog, created. I had discovered back in junior high school days that segregation often provides fertile ground for growth and self-expression, if not equality. The intimidating world of New York advertising proved no exception to that rule. If I had liked my job before, I was besotted by the prospect of creating advertising for black audiences. Uniworld fit me like a comfortable pair of slippers. Inside its walls was an environment that no general market agency could provide. Although a walk through the halls would reveal white, Latino, and Asian faces, Uniworld was unapologetically rooted in the African-American experience. The agency's client roster was blue chip. AT&T, Burger King, 7-Up, General Foods, Ford Motor, and Kodak, among others. All these companies also had at least one general market shop to handle the lion's share of their business. Uniworld existed solely to help them connect with the African-American consumer. 
Instead of the ads that generally decorate agency walls, Uniworld was adorned with important art from Byron Lewis's Afrocentric collection. His reasoning, clients don't come to Uniworld for advertising. They come because they think we know something about black people that they don't. I want everything about Uniworld to validate that feeling. He had come to the right woman. Back when I was at Jefferson Junior High, a black English teacher had given us an assignment to write our feelings about the civil rights movement. After he had handed back our papers, he looked at our 100% black class and said, I wonder how it is that none of you are personally affected by the many problems and issues facing Negroes today. Not one of you wrote in the first person. It's all they are denied their rights and they must continue their struggle. Does this strike you as strange? Still haunted by my girlish rant at the NAACP meeting, I felt so miserably ashamed that I never forgot the lesson and never again referred to my people as them or they. The Uniworld Agency was my first chance to bring that respectful we to work. Byron Lewis was as good as his word. A typical day at Uniworld was my career fantasy fulfilled. I was paired with art director Aaron Bell, son of a well-known jazz bassist who had been part of the Duke Ellington Orchestra. Aaron, like me, was a product of the black consciousness movement who was fervent about bringing our rich cultural experience to the agency product. My first day on the job, we met with Arthur Ashe, who was looking to promote the game of tennis on inner city courts like the ones that later produced Venus and Serena Williams. Aaron's and my first campaign for Kraft Foods featured Earl the Pearl Monroe, Jesse Jackson, and Ronald McNair, a black astronaut who sadly would soon perish aboard the Space Shuttle Challenger. Within the year, we did a Kodak TV spot with Patti LaBelle and radio ads with vocalist Sissy Houston, Patti Austin, and jazz legend John Hendricks. Just as I arrived at Uniworld, my advertising career got made. Advertising Age, the industry trade bible, named me one of the 100 best and brightest in the business. That national honor for which Ross Roy, agency where I worked, had nominated me, upped my standing in Byron's eyes and cemented my place as one of his top executives. Byron, far from being a typical ad man, was a trailblazing entrepreneur who had been locked out of the white advertising industry and had formed his company as a way in. He harbored no illusions that the real power in advertising lay anywhere but within the larger general market world and had great respect for any recognition it conferred. After the advertising age honor, Byron sent me as his surrogate to industry associations like the Advertising Club of New York, where I was able to make my own industry connections. My previous jobs had prepared me well for occupying the black seat at mostly white tables. Over the years, I have encountered African-American advertising professionals who rail against being singled out in this way. But I have tried to use those seats as a bully pulpit to bring attention to the concerns of African-Americans and other minorities. Strikingly, I have rarely seen a black or brown face in the room that was not there to provide expertise about minority consumers. In a country where so many advantages have been doled out to whites because of their color, it baffles me that any colored person would devalue a situation in which not being white 
actually made one more desirable. So. As I said, it's difficult to know what, what to read from a book that, that has so many facets, no pun intended. Uh, but I hope that it's given you a, a sense that the book that I wrote is meant to be not just a business book, not just a presentation of a career in advertising, but of a black person's life who ended up having a career in advertising. And I would love to answer questions from you. the first agency that you uh, started with and then how did you progress from there? The first agency that I worked for was Darcy McManus and Magius uh, which there was a period in the 80s and 90s when a lot of agencies merged and they became DMBNB when they merged with Benton and Bowles and uh, they don't really exist anymore because they got merged kind of out of existence. But the thing that's important about my ending up working there is that one of the reasons I went into advertising uh, after leaving college was that I knew that I would probably be able to do best uh, in an area that allowed me to work with words. And in Michigan, there was that sort of left publishing and advertising. And in Michigan, because of the car industry, there was big time advertising. Uh, and I thought, well, okay, so I'll try for that. But here's the thing I lived in Pontiac. Detroit is 25 miles south down the road. When I was growing up, the way to get there was Woodward Avenue, which ran directly from Pontiac to Detroit. And through Bloomfield Hills, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Oakland County, but, but Pontiac is, was an industrial uh, working class factory town, although booming when I was a kid, but surrounded by very affluent suburbs like Bloomfield Hills and Birmingham still is. Well, Bloomfield Hills, Woodward Avenue, beautiful mid-century building that I have been seeing my whole life. And I remember looking at that building every time we passed it, it seems to me, and thinking, boy, I don't know what they do in there, but I need to be in there doing that. <laughs> and that turned out to be my first job in advertising in the big building off, off the side of the road, the international headquarters of Darcy, McManus, and Majus, which was an international company at that time with offices all over the world. So I, I got in there, courtesy of someone with no advertising connections whatsoever. My mother <laughs> read the paper every day. I have so many memories of my mother, you know, kind of reading the newspaper. That was her quiet time. We were not allowed to bug her. And she said, you know, I was reading in the paper that the president of that agency, Darcy, made a speech at the NAACP Freedom Fund dinner about how they're looking for Afro-Americans, as we were called in those days, but they just can't find any. Didn't you say you sent them a resume? 
Well, I had because I didn't have any better sense than to think I would send them a resume and somebody would call me and say, would you like to come in for an interview? I had no idea how connected you needed to be to get into a profession like advertising. So I just called them up and said, you know, I read in the paper that your president uh, gave a speech and said that he was looking for Afro-Americans and couldn't find any, but I sent you a resume and no one ever even inquired about whether I might be African-American, so the Afro-American. So they didn't want to be embarrassed, so they gave me an interview. But I think they had very little intention of hiring me as a result of that interview, but by that time, I had gotten a gig writing about music for a local, I don't know what the equivalent would be in Baltimore, but most large cities have one of these big outdoor amphitheater type venues and we had one in Michigan and and national touring acts you know when they're in between Chicago and somewhere else you know would stop off um it wasn't technically in Pontiac and I can't remember it was like one of the near end suburbs and I had a gig writing about music and as a matter of fact, the first few years of my career were real. I was really undecided between rock and roll and advertising, where I was going to spend my life. Um, so that's how I got in there. Um, and when you read the book, you'll see that the first day I showed up was sort of a bait and switch. They were like, uh, okay, so now you're going to be a junior copywriter, but you're not actually going to write anything. <laughs> we'd, we'd like you to go down to the traffic department well, traffic is what it sounds like. Um, it doesn't exactly exist anymore in advertising because everything has changed. But the traffic person made sure that any job that got started was at the stage of the process where it was supposed to be at a certain point. Um, and, of course, the end point was production and appearance uh, in a magazine or on a billboard. Um, they didn't really handle broadcast, but that's a little inside baseball. So they sent me, they were going to send me down to traffic for a couple of weeks. And the person who hired me, who was a vice president, stopped by the office of the executive creative director on the way down there and said, well, this is Valerie, and she is going to be a new junior copywriter, but we wanted to go down to traffic for a couple of weeks and learn the business first. And this guy, who really was an uncanny uh, resemblance to Don Draper on Mad Men, if you watch that, slender, you know, dark hair, uh, with the fabulous office and the whole thing. He looked at me and he said, mm, you're very lucky. It took me two years to get out of traffic. That was it. That was my introduction to my new big boss and my first day on the job. But it turned out to be very motivating. It was like, well, I won't be stuck in traffic for two years. Um, first of all, when they put me in traffic, I had already been working for several years as a hospital ward clerk. So the work that they were doing was child's play to me. Uh, it, it was... It was very easy for me to finish any little tasks that they gave me and run upstairs and say, is there something I can write? Is there something I can write? Is there something I can write? And somebody gave me an opportunity to write an ad, and the client bought it. And so in four days, I was out of traffic. Thank you. I'm still proud of that. All right. Hi. Uh, I've forgotten what I was going to ask you. You got caught up in what you were saying. Uh, uh, I'm just curious. Mm -hmm. 
is there any general uh, theory in the business that uh, African Americans can only be effective appealing to the non uh, non uh, African audience? I would say on an individual level that's not true. But if you cross over, as I did, to a multicultural agency, you you have crossed to the dark side and you can do no more work. We've heard more than once tonight that I was given this honor that, you know, and it was an honor and I still appreciate it of being named one of the 100 best and brightest in the industry. Well, that actually came out in the magazine right after I joined Uniworld. I was never recruited from Uniworld by any general market agency ever. I was recruited by every multicultural or African-American agency. I was recruited by Motown Records. I was recruited by Bill Clinton, but never by a general market agency. So yeah, there's a presumption that once you're over there, even a white writer who worked for many years at Uniworld decided, well, maybe I'll go back to the general market, found he couldn't go anywhere with a reel full of black commercials, even though it's the same work that you're doing, you know, just aimed at a different group. So there's not that perception about individuals. When I got into the business, nobody assumed that I could only write about black people because they weren't even writing anything for black people then. They didn't care. My, my first few years in the business, I describe as my life as a white guy. I was working on a car account with one other woman, my partner. Uh, we were an experiment, and we worked in a group with 22 men. And our success really was reliant on our ability to think like white men, to write like white men, to joke like white men. So I hope that answered your question. This is really delightful, so thank you for coming out. Oh, thank you. Uh, Question for you about your education. So you Mm -hmm. were talking about your early teen years, and Mm -hmm. then you sort of skipped ahead to, you know, 30-something, and Mm -hmm. um, I want to say Univision. That's not what it is. Um, Can you talk about your, like, the educational choices that you made and how you moved uh, into advertising from those decisions? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, first let me make... One general statement. I didn't so much get an education as I married one. So <laughs> um, when after um, the birth of my son and I went back to uh, finish that last year of high school, and it was very fortunate. I just A friend just said, oh, I'll watch your baby. And I thought, how simple is that? You know, can this really be true? So getting through high school was, was actually relatively easy. But then I went to work at the hospital. I had, you know, mom drops a nuclear family bomb. My mother uh, remarried when I was 13, and my stepfather had some very specific ideas about what happens to you when you have a child when you are a teenager. And that is you become an adult, um, and so now you're sort of expected to go to work and take care of yourself, you know, and to some extent take care of your baby. My, My parents were just besotted with this baby, so it wasn't really so much about my having to take care of him, but certainly they weren't going to send me to college. So I worked for a year, um, knowing most of that time that I was still aiming to go to college. I never 
could envision myself, again, becoming the woman I pretended to be. I never envisioned myself as not being a college-educated person. I never saw that happening. Um, and then when I went to work at the hospital, uh, there were a couple of people, one of them a more innocent friendship than the other one, as you read the book, you'll find out who are very encouraging of me, two doctors who were like, you know, you need to go to college. You, can, you can't spend your life as a desk clerk in a hospital. So I went to Wayne State University in Detroit because it was convenient for me to do that. Um, a lot of the people at Wayne, even though it's quite a good school, uh, are people who work, people who have families, um, very much a commuter school in some cases. However, about three years in, three years of working full-time, going to school full-time. At a certain point, I even picked up a job tutoring because, you know, like I had a free hour uh, every day, so I might as well you know, make a little money while I was doing it. I couldn't do it anymore. There are people who can. I mean, I've read about people who become doctors who were in my situation, and my hat is off to them. I couldn't do it anymore, and also, as a person who always saw myself doing something creative for a living and something involving words, I, I got to a point where I felt like they're not really teaching me anything. They are making me go through these steps and jump through these hoops in order to get to where I want to get. So it not being one of my proudest moments, I just walked into Darcy and told him I had a degree. And no one ever questioned me at all. Uh, much later in my career when I was elected a vice president of one of those general market agencies, the college contacted me based on the press release that they had. Um, and so I wrote them a letter and said, no, I didn't graduate from there. I attended for three years. The release wasn't accurate, but I had to go to my boss and have a come-to-Jesus moment with him. And this is what happened when I went in and made my big confession. Yeah, I don't care. Okay, well, you know, let the PR department know uh, so that it doesn't happen again. You know, we don't want anybody from Wayne State to embarrass us. But that was about it. Um, later on, after I worked for Bill Clinton, someone uh, called me up and said, listen, um, your name has been proposed to be Deputy Assistant Secretary of Labor. Where did I come up with that one? I don't know. You're right. Strange. Uh, but I kind of laughed and said, well, you know, I'm not really a very well educated. And they said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, you know, I went to college, but um, I didn't graduate. And they said, okay, that's not a job requirement. It's not a job requirement to be president. It's not a job requirement to be a Supreme Court justice. And as a matter of fact, I think it was Oliver Wendell Holmes who was not a college graduate. Would, would I have preferred to graduate? Have I uh, thought about it? Yes. Um, I, when I went to New York University and studied film in order to become better at my job, um, I did look at actually paying for those courses and seeing if, you know, I, I would take my degree if somebody would just give it to me um, at this point in my life. Um, and as I said, I've, I've married someone who's like, you know, Mr. Um, multiple degrees, been to law school, medical school, um, Stanford, graduated from Columbia, all of that. I'm trying to make up for it, y'all. 
So that's the story of me in college right now. Oh, did I say I hung around the Ivy League a lot? I I moved to Boston, um, and my friend that I happened to be living with, a girlfriend, was going to Harvard at the time. And so I was kind of hanging around Harvard, and uh, I got involved with the theater group at Harvard. So if you look at my resume, there's, you know, a member of Harvard Black Community and Student Theater and that kind of thing. So I hung around there. I married Alvin, and he went to Columbia, and so I hung around Columbia. Uh, He got a fellowship to Stanford, and so I went to Stanford. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, there's, there's a lot of prestigious places in my background, but I wasn't enrolled in any of them. <laughs> so I'm curious about your title, Pressure Makes Diamonds, Becoming the Woman I Pretended to Be. And so I think you've touched on some of, some of that, but could you say more about maybe some of those pressures? And then um, you talked about it from an education perspective, but how you have become and are becoming the woman that you pretended to be. Mm-hmm. Well, those pressures are very familiar to a lot of African-American people. My parents were divorced, I think, like five minutes after I was born. I I have the feeling that my mother was, like, waiting to, like, have this baby, and I was like, okay, I'll show you now, you know, and left my dad, who was kind of a well-known figure in my hometown, he was uh, he worked at Fisher Body uh, making automobiles, but he was a union steward, and he was somebody who wielded that power of the union uh, with a whole lot of gusto. Um, so everybody knew Spurgeon, um, and everybody knew that I was Spurgeon's daughter, and that my brother Spurgeon Jr. <laughs> was his son. Uh, but my father, and that's in the book too. My father is the type of person who uh, would drive by in his latest shiny new car, and if he saw us, he would toot the horn at us and, you know, like kind of wave, uh, but not stop, you know, say, you know, how are you doing? I, I felt no concern for what I was going to become uh, from my father ever, um, and his, he, his presence was almost non-existent. My mother never had a harsh word to say about him. She, like, just waited for me to discover my father uh, as I grew up. But that kind of absentee-ish father uh, was one of the pressures that I dealt with. Um, And I think for, like, as for a lot of young girls, you spend a lot of time trying to replace that figure in your life who wasn't there. And it, in some ways, it was worse than the person whose father is just a deadbeat or, you know, gone. My father paid his child support, and, you know, he showed up on Christmas and gave us a few bucks um, and gave us the glow of being Spurgeon Graves' children. So that was one pressure. Uh, the other thing was that, you know, like my father kind of had money, but we didn't. Um, so there was that pressure too. We, I can I do not call us poor. Somebody said that to me in an interview, and it, and it, I kind of tripped over it a little bit. And I thought we weren't really exactly poor, but there was never enough of anything, and there was a whole lot of well, you can have that, but you can't have it this week because your brother needs X, Y, or Z. Um, although somehow my mother managed to pay for dancing lessons and musical instruments and all manner of things to enrich our lives. But that feeling of lack was 
a, a feature of my life, too, and that was one of the pressures that I dealt with. The biggest pressures were the fact that my mother remarried, and she remarried a very traditional guy who was sort of like, first of all, he was the man next door. He was a boyfriend for three years, and so we just kind of knew him as Mr. Munson, who was, yeah, that guy was cool enough, but boy, all of a sudden they got married, and he was daddy. And you had to ask daddy's permission to do almost anything. And also my mother, who is a very intelligent, bright person who traveled quite a ways herself um, after leaving my father, became this person who was sort of, well, what do you think, Al? Al, you know, how do you feel about it, Al? And that, that was a, a big pressure on me, too, as it kind of turned my world a little bit upside down. And then, of course, having a child at 16 years old. Especially having a child at 16 years old when you've been the kid that everybody expected great things of was a tremendous pressure because there was a withdrawal of expectation. It wasn't a withdrawal of love or regard or anything. It was like, oh, that nice Valerie Graves, they got her. You know, it got her, whatever, whatever, you know, we all know about it, you know. It's like, boy, we thought she was going to make it, um, but she's not. And that withdrawal of expectations was a tremendous pressure for me. It, it shaped me tremendously. It made me very resolute. It made me that person who for three years could, you know, get up, drop baby off, go to college, take a full load of classes, come back, change into that uniform, work an eight-hour shift, you know, at the hospital, and keep doing that day after day. Um, not long enough to graduate from college, but... You know, that was a tremendous pressure, too. Is that enough pressure? Because there were probably some more. There was being black in advertising. That was another one. <laughs> you just touched on this a little bit, but can you talk about where your strength comes from? I got a lot of strength from the community that I came from. And in those years, you know, before I kind of disappointed everybody by having a baby... So much from starting at home with my mother, who just kind of encouraged us to do whatever really interested us uh, and didn't put a lot of pressure on me. I asked my mother, what do you think I should be when I grow up? My mother would say, I just want you to be a good person. Um, and she was very good about kind of, you know, reining in that um, any ego having to do with, with you know, sort of being a smart kid because both my brothers were smart before me. And when you read what happened to my eldest brother in the book, it is very shocking. I, I don't want to say sad because he came out of it on the other end. But um, we all, there was a speech contest that's written about in the book too at our elementary school. And my brother took first place and I took second. And boy, that caused a little bit of a stir. Um, at the school, the, the subject of our speech was what good sportsmanship means to me, and some of the adults needed to hear that content, <laughs> too, because they were not very sportsmanlike in their comments about the fact that my brother and I took first and second place. Uh, but all of that, all of that expectation from the community, from the church, from my family, you know, I was five years old. They're like, you know, you're going to be a lawyer, and as soon as you learn how to lie, <laughs> you're, 
you'll get to be good at it. Um, so there was all of that. I, I had a really pretty solid foundation of other people's expectations that led to my own, my creating my own set of expectations. That person that I thought I was going to become, she never really went away for me. Maybe for some of the people around me, but I always could see her out there. I could feel her out there wanting to, to materialize. And so that, that gave me a lot of strength for dealing with the things that I had to deal with. Yes. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. When uh, my mother worked, and my mother always worked, uh, when I was a kid, we were taken care of by a lady who was really like a grandmother to us, and her daughter, um, who was divorced and lived with her, was sort of like an aunt to me. And when my son came along, they also took care of him. So we had that continuity too, you know the the Coopers, whom you'll read about in the book, are were a great part of the support system for me. You know, Mrs. Cooper, who we call Mama Cooper, uh, was not educated, but she loved smart children, and she always encouraged us. They all read the paper every day, and they would talk to us about things that were in the paper. You know, the Queen of England is coming. You think she's going to make it to Pontiac? Um, you know. Uh, so on and so forth. So there was that, and I had that very strong uh, family. You know, with the exception of my father, I had tremendous support from my family. But especially after I graduated from high school, you know, my aunt Willa Dean uh, bought my prom dress uh, because she was so proud that I had gone back and finished school. Um, I had all of that in my life. Yes. You remember the little rascals? Remember how they were always having a show in the barn? That was me. My mother would come home from work, and there would be 20, 30 kids, because in the projects there were hundreds of kids, right? You know, they'd be in her yard to see my latest production, you know? So I was always doing My brother, oh my goodness. My mother said, here's your brother. Ma, here she comes again when he had company. Here she comes again with that baton and those tap shoes. That was me, you know, with the baton, the tap shoes. And my, my mother and I went to Niagara Falls once on a church trip, and I got this little boater hat with a blue ribbon on it. So, you know, that was me with the tap shoes, the boater hat, the baton, and, you know, coming to entertain my brother's friends, which, as you can imagine, he, was, he loved it. <laughs> um, so I was always creative. I was and writing from very early on. Once I discovered that I was a pretty good writer, um, was an escape for me, you know. But creating things um, from junior high school, you know, when I created a, a an enrichment program uh, for junior high school girls called the Personality Week, um, and became familiar with what was the underpinnings of uh, my career in advertising, which is going from nothing, from, oh, I had a daydream, I had a thought about something, and seeing how it 
blossoms, you know, how it manifests. That is, that's a very heady thing. I still really love that um, and, you know, still do that, still take a lot of pleasure in that. When you do advertising, so you're the writer, and by the time something goes into production, here are 100 people making it happen. They have no idea who you even are. You know, they don't know that this was all just once an idea in your head. Um, and I, I, I love that process, and I don't care whether they ever know who I am. I'm looking at them and thinking, boy, none of these people would be working if I hadn't <laughs> had that thought. And so I was always creative. Here's my favorite thing to say about that. I saw a piece on uh, CBS Sunday Morning about a man who built wooden boats, these beautiful wooden boats. And he said, I see these people, and they say they're happy, and they seem to be happy, they look happy, but I know they're not happy because they're not building boats. That's kind of how I feel about doing something creative for a living. I can't imagine uh, doing anything that wasn't creative and, and being fulfilled. Hi. I'm just going to jump in here real quick. Um, I'm in publishing, uh-huh. and so as, a, as an African-American female, I do find myself in the boardrooms many times as the only brown-skinned person, so I can identify with that. Um, and as you raise to the top, you see that more often being the one and only. Um, but I was wondering, uh, in your travels through the various positions that you've held, have you ever been um, the victim of a direct racist attack or a direct uh, remark? And how did you handle it? You mean in a professional setting? Yeah. The closest thing that I had to a racial attack was not even that long ago, um, and it wasn't exactly an attack. I was in a a meeting where I was one of the creative directors reviewing some public service advertising, which was being done for a major, major uh, black organization by a white agency that has handled that business for many years, and they've handled it very well. And they wrote one of the greatest and most memorable advertising lines in history for that organization. However, now they decided, like, Maybe it's a little too black. Let's just say the organization has Negro in its name, okay? They decided, you know, they, they do things other than, you know, like just helping black people. Maybe we should talk about that. And they're thinking uh, this strategy that they were presenting was very fuzzy, very amorphous. It's like, why should any black person really care about that? And I was looking at this team, and they were all white, there were like three white women and a white man who had come up with this strategy. And I said to them, you know, because it's a big agency, and I know that there are some black people who work there. And I said, was there anybody? They didn't feel the need for it. They, they thought the client, which is some, if you were in advertising, you know that's anathema. The client was black, so that was enough blackness for them. Right. Nobody on their side creating the strategy and the advertising need to be black because the client was, was black. But at any rate, I said, was there anybody black on the team developing this? And a woman shot back at me. My son is black. And I said, but was your son on the team? 
Um, and judging from her age, her son is probably, you know, like a 10-year-old and being raised by her, so what would he know about it? That wasn't an attack exactly, but it felt like one. It felt like one. I couldn't believe that in 2016 that someone would look at me and shoot back at me. My son is black. Like, that's all the black we need on this team, you know. So I kind of blew up that meeting. Um, and I haven't really been back. I've kind of been moved into the, the status of consultant, but I don't care. It's time for me to move on. I've been doing that for, like, almost 20 years. Um, but, yeah, that's the closest that I can recall. I've, we've had, I had people look at me with great hostility because in the early years of working at Uniworld, we got some business because of pressure from Jesse Jackson, for example. Um, and so in our first meeting with our new clients, they were kind of like, well, you know, we're only here for political reasons, and, you know, all right, what are you going to do? Um, and I just made a decision that our work would speak for itself. Because I've always known uh, at, at Uniworld that nobody was going to out-black me. You know, <laughs> whatever you think you know about creating something for black people, you don't know what I know about black people. You know, you don't, you don't know anything about black people compared to what I know. Um, and so that's kind of how I dealt with those situations where I felt some hostility and won them over. We had people that uh, they, they started out only wanting us to do a print ad, you know, a community relations ad or something like that. And we ended up doing television commercials for them uh, that were hugely popular. Um, at one point, Burger King, which had a very low allocation of their television time allotted to us, about 15% maybe. Uh, we just stole the entire rotation with certain commercials that we did. There was one that we did back in the 80s that featured an original score by Herbie Hancock. Um, I gave Cuba Gooding his first role ever. Um, he appeared in this commercial with a great big parrot sitting on his shoulder. And we hadn't even originally cast him in that role, but the other guy was afraid of the bird. <laughs> And Cuba was like, give it to me, you know. Um, I saw him at a film festival recently, and I said, about 100 years ago, I put a big bird on your shoulder. He said, Burger King, how you doing, baby? <laughs> so, you know. Um, so there, there have been a lot of moments like that where we've just had to win people over who didn't, they didn't intend for us to be doing what we ended up doing. No more questions? This is my favorite part. Can you speak to how, as a woman, you work to develop strategic relationships in order to ensure your personal and professional survival? I think especially given the recent dynamics that we saw last week, um, the role of women in industry is something I think all of us would kind of benefit to kind of hear a bit more about that and your perspectives on that. All of my early mentors in the industry were white men. And I think they mentored me be, partly because they just couldn't even believe that I actually could do this job. 
one of them actually told me that. I won't use the actual word. He said, we just felt like this little bee actually has it, you know. Um, and so they wanted to see me succeed. And, and early on in my career, as I told you, I was very conflicted about whether I was going to be in advertising or rock and roll. Um, and so I wasn't the easiest person to be supportive of either. You know, I, you know missing time, that kind of thing, because I was hanging out, that kind of thing. But um, initially, uh, my mentors were white guys who kind of saw something in me, couldn't believe they saw it, and decided that they needed to help me because of that. Then um, a major mentor was a black vice president, uh, first one I ever encountered, at a general market agency in Detroit called Ross Roy. And my husband says, oh, Bob, saw you coming. And as a person who has gone on to mentor other people, I, I kind of know that that's true. When you spot that person, you know, that you know as a comer, uh, you want to help them. You want to get involved. And after he helped me, uh, he helped, I said, you know, I wanted, he said, what is your ambition? And I said, well, right now is to become a senior writer. And he said, oh, boom, you're a senior writer. Start calling yourself that. You know, nobody is going to say, no, she's not a senior writer. You know, nobody's going to go, like, contradicting that. So just see yourself as that. When I said, <clears throat> you know what, <coughs> excuse me, uh, I'm getting married, and my husband is going to Columbia for a year, and I was thinking, excuse me, got a little tickle in the throat. I was thinking that it might be a good thing to work in an African-American agency for that year. I really wasn't looking to cross over for good. I just thought, okay, there's another little arrow I can put in my quiver. That guy just picked up the phone. He didn't know Byron Lewis. But he picked up the phone and it was like this. Hey, Byron. This is Bob. I want you to talk to you know a copywriter that I know. And, and I saw that. And I learned from him, too, that you know there, there's a lot of uh, value in learning how to act as if. I always had my picture of who I was going to be, but beginning to act uh, as if was something that I learned from a mentor. And because I did not have it so much myself, I was determined to be a mentor. And I always say it like this, my kids are everywhere. You know, I was blessed that the Advertising Club of New York kind of threw me a book launch party the other night, and it was a room full of people that I've had the opportunity to mentor, help in this business. Uh, they're male and female. One of, one of my serious protégés who wasn't there because he's in Chicago now is, is a young white guy who I call a design savant because he's a brilliantly talented art director, but I don't think he paid attention to anything that happened in school after about fourth grade. <laughs> and I thought, you know, all of this talent that you've been blessed with is going to go for naught um, if you continue to be as ignorant as you are. And so he kind of became my project, too. But I have all kinds of people. I, I took um, one of you know, the people I'm proudest of to uh, an event with me last week at Drexel University where they ask you to bring a mentor. She was an engineer, and she sat down next to me at a party. 
And people were talking about what they would do if, you know, if they really could do whatever they wanted to do. And she said, oh, I'd like to be in advertising. I said, you're kidding. We have an internship program that's starting now. And I invite you to apply for it. Uh, she did apply. She became one of our interns at Uniworld. She worked at a general market agency, McCann Erickson, which is one of the very big ones in the business. She went on to become a, an executive creative director, and she's now just decided that she wants to branch out beyond advertising. She's starting a nonprofit of her own. But, man, my kids... Uh, the executive creative director of Spike Lee's agency, Spike DDB. That's one of mine. Um, they're, they're kind of all over the place doing things, and it, and it is the single thing that I am proudest of in my career is that I was able to help some other people, um, first just by being there for them to be able to see me, but more than that, by actively being part of their lives. Even the ones who didn't stay in advertising, uh, Reginald Hudlin. I don't know if you guys, if, do you know the movie Boomerang? Okay, Boomerang is based on Uniworld advertising, which means that Halle Berry was playing me. So, <laughs> so maybe those kids out there are the second thing that I'm proudest of, because you know, that, that doesn't suck either. Um, but at any rate, Reggie was one of our interns and he left because he uh, got an offer to you know, go do house party. I had hired him for our internship based on a 20-minute student version of house party that he had done when he was at Harvard. Yeah, and over the years, we've just remained uh, friends, and he's one of those people who didn't change on me as he got huge in Hollywood. He produced the last Academy Awards. I don't know whether you guys know that or not. Uh, but at any rate, I was also able to hire him as a director. We did some commercials with Steve Harvey, and Reggie was our director. So I'm, you know, I'm just I'm proud of the ones who remained in advertising, and everybody whose life I was ever able to touch, and they went on to do something else, you know. But I still know where they are and what they're doing, and and claim you know that much credit for that. Hi, I do have a question for you. Um, you talked about the boardroom as far as um, race, racial issues, as far as working for different agencies. But now that you had worked for an African-American agency, you, race can be a very interesting scenario. For instance, if you design an ad and you had four Caucasian people and you had four African-American people, the Caucasian people will look at it and say, it's a black ad. And then you could have the African-American people look at it and say, oh, it's a white ad. And how do you deal with that with your designing advertisements? And then the other question is, there's also an issue of if someone is, when you're designing an artwork for the African-American community, skin tone plays a huge role. If this person's too light-skinned, too dark-skinned, too, how did you deal with that and face those challenges? Okay. At the time that I got into multicultural advertising, it was all brand new. And we had these giant brands that I just read to you. Well, of course, their first concern was like, we don't want to turn off our white consumers. So everything that we did was tested against uh, what they called the general audience, but it was really a white audience to make sure that no one was offended. That's when I learned uh, one of the big truths of being in advertising, which is that, honestly, 
white consumers think everything is for them. You can put a completely black cast in a commercial, and if it doesn't have an insight, actually you can do both, and let me explain this, but if the insight um, for the black person is not specifically visible to them as a white person, um, you know, then they just assume that it's a commercial for me, you know, and, oh, excuse me, and for everybody, but certainly for me. You know, because there's the kind of assumption that, you know, like the world is for me in a way that we as people of color aren't born with. You know, God bless anyone who manages to achieve that. You know, um, it's kind of difficult for most of us to just like have the, the feeling that, you know, like whatever is out there is out there for us. But I found that to be true. Now... Dealing with African-American people, there is stuff that you have to know. You know it. There is stuff that we do, but why you got to do it on TV? You know, how come we're always singing and dancing while tapping their feet to the commercial as it played? When it ends, what'd you think? Uh, why were they singing and dancing? Why are we always singing and dancing? Uh, we're very sensitive about our image. And early on, you know, I had to learn that, sometimes through, you know, a little bit painful experience, uh, what we care about, um, what we don't care to see. Uh, the fact that all of us, black, white, and probably every other color, uh, prefer an idealized reality. You know, we want to look at a world where people are getting along and kind of living together and, and uh, where people's color doesn't really matter. That's, that's the picture that all of us kind of want to look at. But in terms of what is resonant with African-American consumers, there are some things that haven't changed yet because creative hasn't changed in some ways because reality hasn't changed. We have too many fatherless families, but if 50%, and that's about where it hovers, of African-American households are headed by females, that means that 50% aren't. That's 50% we want to look at when we see a commercial. You know, we love seeing uh, intact families. We love seeing wedding rings on people. We love seeing people who are accomplished. Uh, one of those uh, times when we were meant to play a very small role, not very small, but a small role, was in the reintroduction of Buick, you know, which used to be a cool thing uh, in the black community, and they saw some little flickering lights that said, you know, Buick could come back to life uh, with black people because we always knew that a Buick was a good car. They just got to be kind of ugly, boring cars after the era of the deuce and a quarter um, and, and the Buick Regal, you know. So being, uh, look at that with the big steering wheel, right, um, and the lean. But, you know, being of an age where I could remember that, that was my family's first new car was um, an Electra 225. Um, hey, when I got the opportunity to work on Buick, um, we kind of knew where to go with it. 
Um, and then uh, we had some success with a small program in Atlanta that was only radio, but we used Isaac Hayes, who we knew was like the timelessly cool voice um, to represent Buick. And he was the kind of, you know, Buick, uh, player in a Buick had always been able to find each other. Okay. So that, was, that gave us a little foot in the door. And they said, well, why don't you put them also on the team to introduce the new Buick Enclave, which was like their SUV that was really to bring back the Buick brand. And my team just really did me proud. My art director was on the Internet and found that the lead interior designer for the Buick Enclave was a very handsome black man named Michael Burton. And we did a television commercial and a beautiful print ad with Michael Burton. We uh, talked our clients somehow into spending a fortune to buy the rights to a song called Feeling Good that's been used about three times since then by everybody else, but was made famous by Nina Simone. And we, uh, were, we managed to sometimes ads just take on a life of their own. We got Olita Adams to sing our commercial. Um, and the client coughed up a real budget for us to do a beautiful commercial featuring Michael Burton. Now, what I know as a black creative is that if you show black people and a black executive, the lead interior designer for the vehicle that is supposed to bring Buick back and let them know what they are looking at, who they are looking at, you're going to be successful. But we were successful kind of beyond our wildest dreams. When they tested that advertising, it obliterated all of the records for changing purchase intent among black consumers, just completely shattered them. You, you could not turn on that commercial on your TV for a while without seeing that commercial. And certainly not if you watch like design TV, like HGTV or something. You, all of a sudden it was, you know, birds flying high, you know how I feel. Um, and there was Michael Burton in his beautiful house waking up and showing you how he was surrounded by beautiful things that influenced him to design this beautiful car. So We'll take one last question. There may not be one. Uh. Mm -hmm. Well, the short answer is he's great now, <laughs> you know, and, and he's been great for quite a while. But like so many young people, you know, fell into that trap of drugs for a while, and we had to uh, find our way through that. Um, my son is one of the, he's, he's sort of a savant too. He has been a sports fanatic from the time he was about seven years old. He was like, oh, you have to have your own TV because he wanted to watch and still watches every game that's on television. Um, he played sports. Uh, my, my family at my high school sort of in a couple of generations, like three generations actually, were stars on the basketball team, starting with my uncle, my father's younger brother, who was like 
played one year and won a basketball scholarship and was a high school All-American basketball player. Then when I was in ninth grade, I think, my cousin, who was a senior, was the star of the team. So my son, who's a very small person, his father's a small person, so Brian is like this tall and decides that basketball should be his sport. And there was a time he tried out for the team, and I, you know, we had that talk with him, Alvin and I. You know, it doesn't matter whether you make the team or not. What really matters is that you tried your best. And you know, okay, he, he made the varsity basketball team. He's the shortest player still in the history of that high school to ever play basketball. So he was very successful doing that. That forced him to at least focus on school enough to get grades that were good enough to stay on the team. He went to a historically black college um, and then sort of like me left um, after his junior year because his girlfriend became pregnant. Um, And unlike my father, uh, he has been a stellar father. It's been very important to him to be a huge part of his, his son's life. Uh, But he, you know, stumbled off the path, got involved with drugs, Um, we thought that he was okay and he got his dream job working with the Detroit Pistons and after a couple of years with them in sales um, we realized that he's he's using drugs but with the help of a young men's leadership group in Michigan where a person saw something in him and my son is, he's a special guy Um, He is that. If if you ever met him, you would never forget him. Um, He came out of it. He also, after that and as part of that process, uh, became a deeply religious person. So if he met you now, it would be, hi, Mrs. Brown, how are you? God bless you. You know, that's, that's just Brian. Everyone loves him. He's an enormously successful sales executive. He's with the uh, Sacramento Kings right now. He was also with the Miami Heat from the time Dwayne Wade was a rookie uh, until they won a championship. He has a championship ring, which is his pride and joy. Um, So he's doing fine. He's doing great. Well, we want to thank Valerie Grace for this great presentation. Thank you. So we have books in the hallway for purchase, and Valerie will be signing books here at this desk. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.